0: Welcome to Ordinary Matters, a podcast about faithfulness in everyday life because the ordinary matters. My name's Alistair. I'm the lead pastor of St. Peter's Fireside, a church in Vancouver, B.C., and this is who I'm primarily speaking to in this podcast. But if you're listening in, I hope it'll be helpful to you as well. In this episode of Ordinary Matters, I'm sitting in my kitchen with my wife Julia once again. British Columbia just entered into phase two and life is changing around us. And as we enter into this space, we're still actually going to carry grief. I think there's going to be this subtle expectation that as we enter back into whatever the new normal is, that suddenly we'll be okay again. And yet, grief doesn't work that way. And so we want to speak about grief and lament in this episode and we hope it will be helpful to you. So Julia, what can you tell us about grief?
1: Grief is a word we use to describe a process. Initially, it was for um, specifically when someone um, had a loved one who died and researchers watched what happened in that individual as um, they observed their behavior and their emotions. And since then, there have been a few models of grief that have been developed, but usually it's a feeling of loss.
0: In your work as a counselor, is there a model of grief that you gravitate toward or that you assume in conversations?
1: There are two that I most often pull on. The classic model of grief by um, Kubler-Ross, which is the stages of grief. If anyone's heard of the stages of grief, Mm -hmm. that was um, the idea of Beginning phases are things like shock or denial and uh, time of bargaining, which is that idea of, could I have done something different or um, I'll do something and it'll help the situation go back to the way it was. Then there's uh, stages of big emotions like sorrow or melancholy or anger. And the final stage is acceptance of this New reality without the presence of someone who died. So that's the overarching classic model of grief that I pull on knowing that it wasn't meant to be linear. Grief um, does encompass all of these elements and they sometimes travel in a nice smooth train and sometimes they don't. So just as a knowledge base that... Um, someone who's grieving is going to have moments of denial and shock moments of big feelings big negative feelings they're going to have moments of trying to sort out in their brain if they could have done something if they'd had any power or control but ultimately that we're moving towards a place of accepting the loss accepting this new reality that we didn't choose and that we don't like Mm -hmm. so that's one the other one um is called the dual model of grief. And that one is more to me about the day-to-day walk of grief, that you are simultaneously um, feeling the loss, feeling the absence, missing someone, missing something, while also having further complications due to that loss. Mm -hmm. So for example, when someone's spouse dies, they feel an ache, an emptiness, a void, um, that takes a lot of their attention, a lot of work, but also they have to plan a funeral. They have to sort out finances. They have to communicate to a lot of people about a lot of things. So there's this work that's done. And um, this model is best illustrated through an image. Um, And since we're on a podcast, (laughs) I'm going to do my best. But on one side, you would have all of the feelings um, and experiences as a result of the absence. And on the other side of the paper, you might have all of the feelings, experiences, um, the work that come with the lost things you have to do and engage in. But then there's this wiggly line down the middle, as if you're bouncing from one to the other, from one to the other, from one to the other. And that wiggly line is in my, when I explain it is like the 24 hour period of actually lived life that you're not totally, in one zone or the other
0: and grief can be it can come in different forms so there's uh, acute grief of a sudden loss and suddenly you're overwhelmed with grief and in scripture we see that when that happens there's often lamenting uh, a tearing of the clothes a a weeping a sackcloth and ashes a a fasting and in some ways it's involuntary Uh, so when you lose someone, you involuntarily cry or might start to sleep more or or weep uh, uncontrollably. And that that's a, acute grief. Um, but then there's prolonged grief. And this season of COVID-19 will have both depending on what people have gone through. And so can you speak a little bit to the challenges of walking through prolonged grief?
1: I think the challenge is and I may, might relate it more to our current life is um, grief can make you feel crazy. Hmm. And we don't like that feeling as human beings. We like to feel competent, empowered. We like to feel happy and safe and calm. And grief, this process, this new way of living without what you had before Um, produces a lot of stress reactions and um, a lot of symptoms similar to depression um, or anxiety. And that sense of feeling crazy, that sense of feeling out of control over a prolonged period, um, that added stress can really wear on someone. Mm. Obviously, the level of intensity might be different for COVID-19. Some of us may be feeling a a lower, milder level of grief, that's an ache or an annoyance, an irritation that's with us every day, but it does affect us.
0: Hmm. And so part of why we're on this topic is we also want to talk about practices of lament for processing our grief, because we live in a culture in which grief is often privatized. It's something you have to deal with on your own, and then you have to emerge in public and put on a face and, and move on. And what we want to invite for people is simple practices, simple ways to connect with your grief and to express your grief, uh, to process it and to make space for it, to welcome it. So that as you continue to live your life through this really unprecedented time in human history, you um, you don't push down part of yourself. Uh, Brene Brown talks a lot about how you can't selectively numb emotions. You numb one and you numb them all. And should we not make space for our grief, we might actually compromise our joy. We might compromise our compassion. We might end up feeling numb. So we came up with five practices and we'll talk briefly about each. Uh, The five practices of lament are curl up and cry, find a place to scream, Write about your feelings and pain. Tell someone about what you've lost and who you miss, or invite God to just sit with you in the silence. So let's start with the first one curl up and cry. And since I really struggle to cry, I'm going to let you take the lead on this one and I might chime in occasionally.
1: Yeah, I had a lot of fun researching today about crying because uh, having worked in mental health for over a decade, I know from experience that crying is beneficial, but obviously that wasn't enough information just to share on a podcast. So I had a lot of fun doing some research Mm -hmm. today. I heard um, that on average, a man cries about twice a month. And a woman cries three and a half times a month.
0: I just realized how on average I am.
1: And then I thought that was such a lovely thing. I love figure, I love numbers and figures when they just give us a sense of where we are. So if you're on average above or below, there's no judgment, but it's just something to take note of for your own personal mental wellness journey. But crying actually is beneficial. Um this concept of holding in our emotions or a stiff upper lip or being brave is, I think, said with good intentions, but it denies our biology. That in moments of emotion, sometimes sadness, sometimes joy, sometimes embarrassment or fear, we cry. And that is something that happens in our our central nervous system so crying if you think about babies is actually a form of self-soothing why we didn't used to know but now we know that crying after an emotional cry your brain releases positive neurotransmitters so it releases chemicals called oxytocin and endorphins oxytocin is the um, commonly called the love hormone it's the hormone that is produced when you cuddle with someone or when, um, a mother is nursing a baby, it's a connecting hormone. And what's amazing is you can cry by yourself and still feel a sense of connection and sense of love that overwhelms your brain the same way as if you'd just been cuddled. So mm. after a cry, oxytocin is released. That's important to know. Um, the other one is endorphins. Um, endorphins you might've heard with runners high or after, you know, a really hardy workout, maybe you have a, a positive feeling in your body. Um, endorphins are similar to opioids. They are pain relievers. So if you think about morphine, I've had morphine ones in my life and I think if I was ever in pain, I would absolutely choose to have morphine again. It was a very positive experience.
0: Medically offered morphine just to clarify. Yes,
1: it was. It was professionally handled. Um, So crying can release these pain relieving brain chemicals that can feel calm. So to me, curl up and cry is just an idea of self-soothing but mm-hmm. because we know the biology is there, that God made us, he knit us together with this beautiful system inside ourselves that we can self-soothe, mm-hmm. we can curl up and cry and it produces something in our brain, and our bodies that is positive. Mm.
0: Now, if your story is anything like mine and you've spent years learning how not to cry. No shame. <laughs> that you've gotten to the point where you don't know how to cry. Um, what I would encourage you to do is to pay attention to those moments in your life where it sneaks up on you. So years ago, Julia tricked me into watching Marley and me. And it wasn't until it wasn't a trick (laughs) (laughs) still. I'm processing it. Uh, It wasn't until about three quarters of the way through the movie that I realized that the dog was going to die. Spoiler alert. (laughs) And I was very upset and cried and, Interestingly enough, uh, a person I mentor a while ago was having trouble connecting with his pain over a relationship that didn't work out. And so I said, well, why don't you go home and watch Marley and Me (laughs) and induce a good cry? And it was surprisingly helpful for him. So sometimes we need aids that can can help us connect. Uh, For myself recently, due to COVID, some very close friends of ours moved and had to go back home to the States abruptly. And that was really hard. And I couldn't cry in front of our girls or I, I didn't really want to cry in front of Julia right away. And so I had to pull a blanket up over my head and just have time to myself and create a space where I felt comfortable to cry. And so if you struggle to cry, no, you're not alone. Um, and that you might need to use an aid or you might need to have an environment where you feel uh, safe enough to let your wall down even with yourself. Because I don't even feel comfortable crying when I'm all alone, and so uh, just know if that's hard for you, um, that's okay. And uh, there's there's ways you can try to connect with that and grow in your comfort with it. And as Julia's so helpfully highlighted, there's lots of benefits to it, especially in a season of grief and loss.
1: And I think um, there's this lovely thing that it is a response in grief, usually to the melancholy, usually to the sadness, usually to the heaviness of feeling loss. Um, If you're not, if your grief doesn't look like that right now, you you can't force tears. I mean, I guess you could really try with Marley and me, you could probably do that. So the idea is this is one of the five ways Mm -hmm. to deal with grief. This one is more oriented towards big waves of sadness. Mm
0: Now, the second practice is find a place to scream. And I feel like as an ex-emo screamo singer, I have a lot to say about screaming. But when you came up with this idea, it, it struck me as odd at first, although it makes sense. And maybe it struck me as odd as a Christian is screaming seems like quite a violent thing to do. It doesn't necessarily feel like a safe thing to do. So to add some caveats that we're not encouraging you to scream at anyone we're not Correct. encouraging you to freak anyone out. Correct. So what are we encouraging you to do? And how is this a healthy thing to do and not a violent thing to do?
1: Yes. I think the first thing I want to say is that anger is a normal part of grief. Hmm. Anger is a normal part of grief. It is part of the brain process. It is it is going to be at some point something you feel, um, In my experience with people who grieve, people feel angry from time to time. So the scream idea is mostly about anger is an activating, um, intense, sometimes energized, negative emotion. Mm -hmm. So our bodies have this sense of needing to move or needing to yell or needing To, you know, have a temper tantrum flail on the floor. Um, So part of this is just knowing that anger is part of the grieving process. And the screaming is trying to find a way that's the least destructive as an outlet for your anger. That that energy is going to come out in one way or another. So rather than saying like, go for a run, because I don't like running, I thought... We'll say you can scream. You may have heard, scream into a pillow, punch a pillow. You know, um, with little kids, we tell them to stomp their feet. We tell them to move. We tell them to move or to speak, to do something with their body, to help that energy find a safe way out. If you're with someone, please tell them, I'm going to scream right now because I'm angry, so that they're they're not any misunderstanding about why you're (laughs) screaming. Uh, I guess ideally maybe we could have said scream, into a pillow or scream when you're alone or something, but yeah, we have anger. It's okay. It's okay Mm -hmm. to have anger.
0: Now, if you are going to scream as someone who, (laughs) how do we do this? Yes. Tell us (laughs) us how
1: to scream. (laughs) uh,
0: It was funny when Julia, for both of our pregnancies, our, our midwives, uh, you might not remember this, but gave you advice about how to scream. And it was surprisingly uh, coherent or, um, correlated to my own experiences of screaming in a band. You you don't want to scream high. What, what I mean is you don't want to go for a high pitch. You want to scream from your diaphragm, from your from your stomach. You want that kind of low growl. Uh and so look if you just scream They told
1: me to growl? I don't remember this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> very different a recollections of that
1: <laughs> I mean, I can imagine. But you want to you want to
0: scream with uh diaphragm support. Otherwise you're gonna hurt your voice. Now if you're just screaming once or twice, you're not going to worry about any vocal damage. But if you don't want to make your voice hoarse, and if you don't want to have a sore throat, just use your diaphragm, you know, take a big breath and and let that air uh, f- be forced out. So uh, as a pastor, I never thought part of my pastoral advice would be giving you how to tips on how to scream, but I, I hope that might help.
1: Yeah. What you said just sparked something. I didn't I spark think- joy. It did spark joy. (laughs) Thank you, Marie Kondo. Uh, The idea also of breath here, that screaming is a forceful exhale. And uh, sometimes that sighing, that deep exhale, that elongated exhale is also soothing to our central nervous system. So if screaming isn't your deal, like if you're more meek or timid or whatever, quiet, quiet. And you don't want to scream, you can also, you know, heave or extend your breathing on a longer exhale.
0: So you can scream. But if you don't want to scream, uh, an alternative is to write about your feelings and pain. Uh, as part of my doctoral research, I came across a book by James Pennebacher. He's a social psychologist, and he's researched expressive writing. And the surprising health benefits that come simply by writing about your feelings. Now, in his initial research, uh, participants, all they did was write about their feelings of a traumatic event or a specific event for 15 minutes, four days in a row. And they found that that didn't have immediate benefit, but had benefit six weeks later, six months later. So there's benefit to writing about your feelings and pain, and there's research to back that up. And the goal of expressive writing is to get into almost a stream of consciousness writing about your feelings, so that you're not editing yourself or holding back or trying to analyzing it. You're just letting it come out and writing as much as you can, focusing specifically on the feelings you have about what you're writing about and not just describing the event you're writing about. And so we would invite you to that practice. If you don't quite feel ready uh, to scream or if you're struggling to cry or if if you're doing either of those things, finding just 15 minutes for a few days in a row to write specifically about your feelings during COVID-19, it might not immediately make you feel better. And in fact, if it makes you feel worse, uh, reach out to someone you trust to talk about that. But the research shows there's going to be benefit in the long run for you if you do that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if it is for some reason really distressing, there are crisis hotlines you can call. um, If for any reason what's coming out in your journal is distressing to you, Um, you can look on Google for a crisis hotline in your area. Yeah. I also appreciate the idea with writing... um, The stream of consciousness is lovely, but sometimes we do go back and see, see things in our writing and it can create a sense of understanding or a sense of compassion or a sense of, um, being with ourselves in the grief.
0: So our fourth practice is tell someone about what you've lost and who you've missed. In other words, don't go through your grief alone, but reach out to someone and Mm -hmm. talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can you tell us about the importance of this?
1: On this, I'm going to pull into attachment theory. This is the idea that we were made for connection. You know, we're born into a mother's arms. We're not born alone. And sometimes um with grief, Alster, you mentioned this like we feel a need to do it privately and then when we're with other people or in public spaces, we put on some kind of front or mask. Um, And I do think that's a way of coping. It's understandable that that might be something we do, but my hope would be that there's, you know, one, two, maybe three people in your life that you could share uh, what's really happening. You could share about the loss. You could share about um, the person you miss. And that is because we're made to be connected to other people, that that has a calming and soothing effect that has benefit in, um, so many aspects of our wellness. And if you're interested, you can research attachment theory and learn more in this time. Um, part of it is that people who you trust can offer you compassion. Maybe you can't offer yourself they can offer you a hug, and a hug releases oxytocin, which we learned about earlier. They can um, sometimes bring you a meal or do something practically that's helpful that lowers your stress. When you include someone else in the journey, this is again maybe a Christian concept as well as a humanist concept concept of we're sharing the burden. And there are people in your life who love you, who want to come alongside you, who want to hear. Um Also, there's a cognitive behavioral idea that um, I've experienced with a lot of clients is that as they're talking, when they say out loud the things that have been swirling in their head, they will catch themselves and say, wow, that sounds a little bit crazy now that I say it out loud, or wow, that's, that's definitely a dark thought. And almost in saying it out loud, there's a sense of it being free from inside of them And something they can look at and dissect and actually respond to rather than it just swirling around in their mind. So something about sharing and talking that helps us process that information better. And the last point I'll say about talking is also in the writing. Um, Dan Seigel is a neuroscientist and psychiatrist who works with children. Brilliant man. And he has very cleverly come up with a phrase, name it to tame it, to use with kids who are struggling with big feelings, that naming the feeling will tame it in some way. So there is a lot of science behind this. If you want to read more, Dan Siegel's written many books about this. I will not go into it, but name it to tame it. So talking with a friend or writing it down, naming the feeling can tame it.
0: And. Um, I want to recognize it can be hard to bring up your grief with someone and maybe you're in a conversation, whether it's a Zoom call or a person now in our expanded social circles that are approved by BC. um, It's hard to bring it up and maybe there doesn't feel like there's an opportune time. What I would suggest is that for the person you want to speak with about it is to ask them in advance. Mm. So that they know what they're going into and you know what you're going into. Mm. And then it creates a bit of safety for you to bring it up. Because if someone's not prepared, they might not be in the emotional or mental headspace to, to hold that space well with you. Mm. Or if you're not feeling prepared, if you're nervous about how to bring it up, it might be harder for you to share. And so mm. with someone you trust to share your grief with, it it could be helpful to say, hey, could we meet so I can talk about what's going on and how I'm feeling? Mm. Now, for the four practices we've shared so far, I think it's worth pointing out that all of these practices can be engaged in the presence of God as well. Yeah. So you can cry with God. You can scream before God or scream mm. at God. Mm. You can write about your feelings in pain, but be writing that to God. You can talk to God about what you've lost and, and who you miss maybe in your grief But one practice and the last practice we want to talk about is to invite God to sit with you in the silence. Or another way of putting it is to sit with you in the absence. And we're so accustomed to filling time, filling space, that we forget that to simply sit still, to acknowledge what's going on in our hearts, what's swirling in our minds, and to take the time to let all of that slowly settle we can sit with God and God will sit with us and he'll meet us and he'll weep with us. He'll comfort us. He'll speak to that hurt, but we need to slow down first and enter into that silence or enter into that emptiness or enter into that absence with him. Mm. And so that's the fifth practice. Invite God to just sit with you in the silence.
1: Yeah, I love that one. I would maybe just make some suggestions or ideas if this is something you've never done before. Um, one is when you're sitting with God, this is again from Dan Seigel, his research is that um, if we're trying to draw something into our awareness, he has the phrase SIFT, S-I-F-T. SIFT. That is sitting and asking yourself, what are my sensations? That's S. What are my sensations? So if you think you're sitting with the Lord, you're sitting in his presence, what are your sensations? These are physical sensations, warmth, coolness, um, heaviness, something along those lines. If you're having a hard time being aware of him, ask, as I sit with the Lord with my pain, what are my physical sensations? Then you can move on to I, which is images or imageries. Is there something that comes to mind in a picture? Um, Are you seeing God as a father with you? Is he, in your, using your imagination, is he interacting with you in a certain way? That's an image. Um, Are you seeing Jesus? Are you seeing a spirit? Like, are you, do you have, um, in your awareness, an image that God might be sharing with you? or something that you've learned from your own life that's helping you feel uh, close to him in that moment. F is feelings. These are more the emotional side of our lives. So sad, mad, scared, peaceful, powerful, joyful. If you just sit, if you're trying to be aware of God, you could ask yourself, what am I feeling in my emotional center? And the last is T for thoughts. So what am I thinking as I sit with God, as I try and be aware of him? What thoughts come to mind? Sometimes it's a Bible verse. Sometimes it's lyrics from a song. It's, it's a word that's been spoken over you or to you. Um, sometimes our thoughts go to a memory or uh, an experience that w- when God was a comfort. So use our sifting, you know, of what you're aware of to help you in those moments of contemplative prayer.
0: So we offer these five practices of lament to you, curl up and cry, find a place to scream, write about your feelings and pain, tell someone about what you've lost or who you miss, or invite God to sit with you in the silence. And as BC restarts, as other places restart, as we enter back into a more active life, a less um, isolated life, we wanna acknowledge that our grief is coming with us into that process. And we wanna help you make room for that, name that, and try these practices so that you can connect with your grief and so that you can express it and know that the Lord is present to your grief. Uh, And so you can be compassionate toward yourself because He's compassionate toward you. You can be kind toward yourself because He's kind toward you. You can be gracious toward yourself if you're not entering back into regular life the way you would like, because He's gracious toward you. And as we connect with His compassion and His kindness and His graciousness, uh, may we extend that toward others as well during this time, because Mm -hmm. it's a struggle for every single person. Mm That's all we have for this week. We hope it's helpful to you. If you found it helpful, maybe share it with a friend or a family member or feel free to reach out to us.